You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, and I am joined belatedly by my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, guys. Hey, we apologize. Yeah. I don't apologize. I don't apologize for shit. Well, you should apologize, because I was sitting in here waiting to record at the time that we designated, and you guys were off playing FIFA 14, <laughs> as you seem to be at all times. I stand by the choice. Our sponsor this week, uh, unsurprisingly, is FIFA 14 by EA Sports. Uh, they kindly sent us some video games and have ruined our week. Uh, with outstanding uh, gameplay and nonstop action. Uh, I think we have another sponsor this week. Is that correct? We do. Uh, we are sponsored this week by LearnVest.com. LearnVest is a place where you can get free money tips, tools, and advice to help you make progress on your money. I need some of that. Uh, our second sponsor, as always, is Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter. We thank them for their sponsorship. Evan, who did you talk to this week? I talked to John Ronson, uh, John Ronson from The Men Who Stare at Goats, probably his most well-known book, which was turned into a movie with George Clooney and other people. Uh, he has also uh, done wonderful This American Life pieces and GQ, and anyone who's British would know him from television as well. He's also hilarious. Thorn in the side of the cruise ship industry. Thorn in the side of a lot of people. He made you so happy. He was so funny. He made you so happy. So happy, yeah. but he also does really serious stuff. He's a serious journalist. Uh, you wouldn't... You think he has not serious subjects sometimes, but uh, he takes it very seriously. He's not the guy, kind of guy who would miss an appointment to play FIFA. That's, That's exactly right. Here's John <laughs> and Evan. Blind pig in off Union Square. You know, all these Americans are going, you know, we hate Tottenham, we hate Tottenham. <laughs> and it's like me, like being in like Russell Square in North London, going, you know, fucking Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. There's one yeah. in Brooklyn, too. The uh, woodwork, the oh. soccer bar here, also is all Arsenal. Right. All the Arsenal fans go there. Right. They're just playing at it. All yeah. the Americans are not really... They're not really upset about it. But you grew up in Cardiff. That's what I mm. I took from uh, following your tweets and uh, mm. reading other things. But w- one one thing I wanted to ask you was, I don't, I don't want to have to go through this whole sort of like, what is the basis of your journalistic uh, motivations? But I'm interested in sort of like what got you interested in these characters because you really specialize in... I don't know how you would describe them. Not fringe, because some of them actually turn out to be uh, yeah, important really to politics. But well, I mean, the last big person I did actually was Malcolm Gladwell. I did this big half-hour discussion with him a couple of days ago, and and he's not, you know, obviously mm-hmm. he's not fringe. Um, I suppose I'm looking. I'm looking more than fringe. I suppose I'm looking. Am I look? I was going to say I'm looking for sort of absurdity, but that's not right either. Quite often the stories are quite absurd. Yeah, I think I'm looking for sort of unexpected, you know, strange narratives that kind of. I don't know, shed a light on the way the world works in a sort of unexpected way. And quite often those things happen on the fringes and quite often they happen in a in a sort of a kind of absurd way, but mm-hmm. not but not always. Like with Gladwell, it's something completely different. With yeah. Gladwell, it's about, well, for me, it was about the, f- the film's going out tomorrow night on BBC Two, as I said. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I wanted to do it was because um, I've always wanted to ask him about broken windows, you know, because he supported the broken windows policy his his essay the tipping point was all about how 
you know, Giuliani and William Brasson were right, you know, and that, and that um, declaring war on fair dodgers would stop murders. And as a result, and I always had the theory that, you know, that I wasn't really around in New York in the mid-90s. I mean, I visited from time to time, but my theory was that nobody really wanted to hear it from Giuliani because he was such a kind of boorish <laughs> sort of thug. But when Malcolm Gladwell came along and said it, I was like, oh, OK. So it's like Malcolm Gladwell gave liberals permission to be more conservative. Mm. Uh, so uh, um, anyway, well, I, and then, you know, a whole generation of people, thousands, tens and thousands of people, you know, were criminalised basically being misfits and there's no evidence that broken windows was the thing that was responsible for the decline in major crime so I always wanted to have that conversation with him so uh, and to me that sort of fits I guess what you'd call sort of my formula for the sort of things I want to tell stories about because you know this was itself I thought kind of absurd and unexpected because it was like a intellectual ideas based article in the New Yorker mm-hmm. the ripples of which affected tens of thousands of people in the outer boroughs mm-hmm. so that kind of you know pricked my interest in, in a way that a more fringy story would because I you know, do you know what I mean I thought yeah, yeah. Kind of similar. yeah um, we, it seems like you you're often you're solving mysteries I mean to some extent any journalist mm-hmm. that's telling stories is solving mysteries but the Gladwell one seems different than some of the other ones because I was gonna ask you when you go into some of the things, whether it's uh, the men who start goats or, you know, you you can pick the example, but do you feel like you don't want to know the answer to the mystery and you don't try to go and read about everything about it beforehand? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And in fact, the the first big story I ever did, I suppose, one of the first ones was um, this thing, it was in my book, Them, and it was about the Bilderberg group. Mm -hmm. Like all these conspiracy theorists and neo-Nazis and Islamic militants all shared this one belief that the secret rulers of the world met once a year in a five-star hotel with golfing facilities, (laughs) and and they were called the Bilderberg group. And one of them said, you know, if you want to find out more, uh, you should get in touch with Big Jim Tucker. So I contacted Big Jim Tucker, who just died about six months ago. Um, Frankly, I'm amazed he lasted that long. I mean, I, I met him in like the end like 96 and we were gonna um we were gonna infiltrate Bilderberg three months later and I was just thinking to myself you know just don't die for the next <laughs> three months because yeah he smoked like 80 a day and and, and well emphasis. you would if you were really concerned with the Bilderberg group well the, plus I had it was a it was a good story yeah. <laughs> I wanted to die um so um anyway so so you said yeah they meet and they're not playing pinochle in there. And he said, I, and I've discovered where they're meeting next. They're meeting at this hotel in Portugal, the Sintra Park. The Cint- uh, what's it called? The Caesar Park Hotel and Golfing Resort, Sintra, Portugal. And so I'm going to go up, I'm going to fly over there, climb up the drain pipes, get in and confront them red-handed going about their covert wickedness. So I said, can I come? <laughs> and he said, yeah. So, um, so and I deliberately uh, didn't, Research Bilderberg, and I didn't research him or the newspaper that he worked for, which was called The Spotlight. Uh-huh. I, I deliberately didn't do anything. I wanted to be absolutely swept up in, in the mystery. And I sort of got into trouble a little bit for that one because it turned out much later I discovered that Jim Tucker's newspaper had kind of neo-Nazi leanings. Mm. They were part of this group called the Liberty Lobby. I got a Holocaust deniers and stuff. And a few people said that I was being kind of, you know, faux naive to, to have not known that or to have pretended to have not known it. But I really didn't know it because I made the kind of conscious decision to not research because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to solve the mystery before it had been undertaken. And I, yeah, and I've kept that up over the years. I've, I've, I only do stories where I really want to know the answer to something. So Gladwell sort of does fit into that, even though it's sort of an unusual sort of story for me. It does because I really wanted to know how he feels about that, you know, how he feels about being kind of partly responsible for like tens of thousands of lives being ruined. And and also how amazing it is that, that one article in The New Yorker can have that power. So, you know, there were sort of mysteries in that one. Um, but yeah, the psychopath test starts with a literal mystery, a kind mm-hmm. of mysterious package arriving through the mail. And um, yeah, a lot, of my, a lot of my best stories are sort of... And in fact, my new collection, Lost at Sea, um, the subtitle is The John Ronson Mysteries because I wanted it to sound oh, like... Yeah. I wanted it to sound like kind of Nancy Drew. <laughs> I was yeah that's actually literally I had written down that I've mm-hmm. I imagine you were like like some kind of like Hardy Boys kid 
yeah. you know the Hardy Boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. oh, certainly um, remember the Ice Spy Club in uh, in in Cardiff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But how did you? How did you? I'm interested a little bit in the background of how you got to the place where you could say to the Bilderberg guy, you know, I want to go along with you. Like the, a little bit about your career and how you got to sure. got into journalism. Okay. Well, so I went just to the local high school, Cardiff High, and at the age of sixteen, I was kind of, you know. Uh, pretty sort of, you know, awkward, you know, not ambitious, just sort of suburban kid. In um, fact, you were at one point thrown into a lake, as I understand. From yeah, <laughs> I, I was thrown into a lake. <laughs> and, um, that's a This American Life piece yeah, that also appears. Uh, in uh, one of my books, Out of yeah. the Ordinary. Yeah, it's funny, actually, you mentioned that, because um, I was thinking about, I haven't thought about that story in years, and I was thinking about it today, because I'm doing this American Life at the moment, and a, a conversation I had with Ira popped into my head, because... What I did was, um, yeah, so I was thrown in the lake when I was 16, <laughs> Roth Park Lake in Cardiff. And then I woke up in the middle of the night, like a couple of years ago, realizing I was still annoyed about it. <laughs> and so I emailed one of them. I went onto Friends Reunited and emailed one of them to say that I'm now a best-selling author. And he emailed me back to say that the reason why they threw me in the lake was because I was a pain in the ass. And the tenor of my email leads him to suspect that I haven't changed <laughs> and that throwing me in a lake again today would be inappropriate. <laughs> so then then I got invited to the school reunion. So I thought I should go to the school reunion and take a and take a radio producer with me and talk to the people who'd throw me in the lake. Anyway, I was in the kitchen house and because and then I did it for this American life. Yeah. And I remember and that's that, a great uh, it's sort of a classic this American life because it has this. Yeah. Uh, people should go listen to it so it's like a spoiler but it's a few years old so I think it's it's yeah, fair to it's not spoil it but time. it kind of goes in one direction and in the very end it comes back in another direction in an amazing way yeah my first inkling that this American Life didn't quite see it the way I did was when I realized what they'd called the the the, the item they'd called it who takes the class out of class reunion <laughs> <laughs> And then Iris said to me, and this is what I remember this morning, Iris said to me, you know, why? Why did you do it? You know, why? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can't remember what I replied, but I mean, what I thought, you know, the, the real reason why I did it was because I thought, you know, this is a kind of funny, unexpected story. It can yeah. make a funny piece of piece of writing or piece of radio. And um, But Ira totally couldn't see why somebody would still feel aggrieved you know, 20 years later, <laughs> want to go to the extent of actually taking a producer with him <laughs> to the reunion. I suppose I, now I look back on it, I, I kind of side more with Ira than I do with myself. <laughs> um, I wouldn't do it now. I definitely wouldn't do it now. Um, it, was, it was actually something, it was like a good story that came from immaturity. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, I think so. Um, I wouldn't do it now. I would have, uh, I'm, I'm too mature to do it. Or now. maybe you would have done something even fancier to sh really show that you were successful. Because that was the yeah. original idea, right? You were going to go back and show that you were successful. Yeah. <laughs> they should have thrown you in the in the lake, or they should have known. Yeah. There's well, this very beautiful TV star called Zoe Ball, who at the time was like household name in Britain. And uh, um, she's still very well known. Uh, anyway, my, my initial idea was to turn up with her. <laughs> but it's so kind of I mean it is it's very classless so it was wrong um, but yeah. anyway I, I stopped you in the middle of uh, um, you, you that you you grew up there yeah I grew up there and when I was 16 my mother um, uh, sort of forced me to intern at the uh, local radio station and um, I suppose that's what started it I, I you know kind of completely fell in love with it and this presenter called Binder Singh took me under his wing and um, sort of put me on the air and I, I, I loved it and as a result of that I got accepted into journalism, journalism college in London mm. and I did two years and then flunked out because uh, I started playing with a band I started playing with a band called the Frank Sidebottom Oh Blimey Big Band and that's come full circle because I've just written a film which is about to come out this kind of inspired by that time uh, with Michael Fassbender. When is this film uh, coming out? Hopefully, it'll be out by like January, February next year. And this, uh, I, I was reading about it, and I think this is probably a phenomenon that's very well known in the UK. But I was not familiar with it. But it, it yeah. the band itself sounds sort of amazing. Well, Frank Sidebottom wore uh, a big papier-mâché head, a big fake head that he never took off, and so nobody outside his inner circle knew what he looked like underneath the head. Uh, anyway, we we decided to fictionalise it. So our our Frank, who's Michael Fassbender, 
never takes the head off like never hasn't taken it off since <laughs> you know well we don't know since he was like 12 um so what we've kind of done is we've combined the real frank sidebottom with other outsider artists uh-huh. like daniel johnson and Captain Beefheart and the Shags and a few others and we've created this sort of fictional character that takes from all of these other people. Uh, so uh, so actually there's a lot of Daniel Johnson in our Frank. Oh. Yeah. Uh, um, Daniel yeah, so, so is that not a problem that uh, you uh, get an incredibly world famous actor to play a part where he never takes off the head? Was there not some studio <laughs> person who said uh, <laughs> But he's got to take off the head. That's why we got him. It's really funny, actually, because I, I went on, when he first got cast, I went on the uh, Michael Fassbender fan sites. And, and that's what they were all saying. They were all going, well, I, I don't know whether we should, I mean, should we see the film now? <laughs> I didn't know what to think. And it's funny, also on the Fassbender fan sites, it's like when, when a new still of him comes out, you know, they put it then discuss it. So here's Michael Fassbender in 12 Years a Slave. Here's my, you know, looking very beautiful. And here's Michael Fassbender in our film with like a big fake head and a kind of <laughs> painted on cartoon face. <laughs> and they're all sort of not really admitting, you know, that they don't know what to do with it. Um, but you played in the band. You were a musician in the band. Yeah, I was the keyboard player. But that's why I dropped out of journalism school because, um, you know, I mean, what an offer. I mean, at the time, Frank was... Uh, you know, playing, we were selling out venues of up to a thousand people, which to me was like, Jesus, you know. Uh, and, and we went around the country, you know, for months and months and months just playing at these venues, and it was, it was amazing. We supported Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, and um, supported Bross at Wembley. Bross were like our, our new kids on the block. Uh, you played at Wembley? Uh, well, actually, I didn't play the Wembley show, but but Frank did. I played the oh. John from Richmond show. Oh, yeah. uh, he was bottled off, Frank, after 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> he was, uh, well, after about sort of five minutes, he, he's, he was doing Bross cover versions and everyone was booing and finally got bottled off stage. <laughs> um, yeah, so then, so then Frank fired us all for tax reasons. Um, he owed, owed £30,000 back tax. And... Um, he, had to, he stood up in court without the head on and the judge said this is a very serious matter have you thought of a payment plan and he said would a pound a week suffice my lord <laughs> and the judge said no it would not <laughs> and so, he, so he fired us all so there was my show business career over and so I went back into journalism and did you go the, was that radio that you took up at the beginning or was it... no there was this there was this um, newspaper called the Sunday Correspondent, which closed down because it went down. This is a shows the sign of the times. Uh, it closed down because it it started to only sell quarter of a million copies. <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, Richard Branson took it over for a bit, and it you know, and it still wasn't selling, and so they closed it down. But um, I remember my big sort of Damascus. It's kind of really strange Damascus sort of moment, but. Shortly after I was fired by Frank Sidebottom, I, I bought the Sunday Correspondent. It was like the first ever issue. And there was this article in it about a professional Andrew Lloyd Webber lookalike. And the article was about how it was like an Icarus story. Like he was getting so much work, he was beginning to actually think he was Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> and I just thought this was like the greatest thing I had ever read. I thought it was funny and surprising and very dialogue heavy. It was written by a writer called Luke Jennings. And I read it and I just thought, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And, and, and it is what I did for the rest of my life. <laughs> I'm uh, one of the co-hosts, and I'm going to pause things just for a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsors. We've got two. The first is EA Sports FIFA 14. Uh, That's a soccer video game for the uninitiated. Maybe more accurately, it is the soccer video game. Uh, We've been playing nonstop in the office for the last couple of weeks. I've been just decimating Aaron. It's been ugly. Uh, And the good folks at EA Sports have given us a couple of games to give away to you, the listeners. Uh, So if you send me an email, max at longform.org, put EA Sports FIFA 14 in the subject line. And if you are one of the first five people to email, I will go to the post office and put a game in an envelope and it will arrive at your house for free. That's a pretty good deal. If you're interested in more good deals or just generally making a good deal out of all of your financial arrangements... 
you should check out our second sponsor, LearnVest. Uh, LearnVest is pretty simple. They want to help you make good financial decisions, and they've got a pretty innovative approach for how they do that. When you join LearnVest, you get unlimited access to money tips and lessons. They've got this thing called Money Center that allows you to connect all your accounts and set up a budget and track progress against your financial goals. Uh, They've got experts you can talk to about retirement and debt and savings, words you have heard but maybe don't totally understand. Uh, You're going to get no jargon, just good financial advice. Hundreds of thousands of people are already using LearnVest. You should join them. It's completely free to get started. Just go to learnvest.com slash longform. Thanks to them. Thanks to EA. Let's get back to John and Evan. And how did you, how did you sort of develop your, you know, your reporting and and writing skills at that time? Did did you feel like you you sort of came naturally to ah, I'm a storyteller and I I figure out how this is, or did you feel like that you struggled for a while to figure out what your voice was right. and how it all worked? No, honestly, say the truth, it, it came really easily to me. I mean, that's why I sort of knew I didn't, I didn't particularly enjoy it. I mean, I much preferred. You know, it was lonely, and at the time, I wasn't quite as introverted as I am now you know at the time the idea of spending a life you know indoors by yourself you know was kind of horrific to me but <laughs> but um so I kind of learned to love it but in terms of being good at it it just came naturally to me it's the only thing you know that I ever did um it's sort of instinct in, you know good I was very I had a good ear for, for dialogue the first story I did actually so I approached this under correspondent and I said you know I'd, I'd love to write that kind of thing and almost immediately I did a story for them and it was the very first thing I ever had in print and it was about an insecure comedian called Bob Dillinger and I spent a day with him and every time, I was only like, I was like 18 and um, every time he said something funny, he'd say, is that funny? Will I use it? Will I use it? And then, and it was just this kind of, you know, so is that this kind of, you know, the entertainer, you know, that Lance Olivier movie? Um... And so that was the first thing I had in print. And yeah, so I had a good ear for, for the dialogue and for the kind of rounding of a story. Um, yeah, and I think in terms of, in terms of like sort of the way I write, it, it kind of really hasn't changed in all these 30 odd years. Um, what, what has changed is that, you know, I won't, I certainly won't do a story where the person is left without any you know, sort of dignity. I think in the early days, I didn't really care. You know, when I was 18, mm. I didn't really care how Bob Dillinger felt about it when he read it, you know. Now I really do care. Now, you know, I make, a, you know, a very big effort that nobody, you know, nobody loses their dignity in my story, in my stories. And the other thing that really matters now is that I won't do a story where, you know, there isn't some sort of, I won't do a story that doesn't matter. You know, I want to I want to find those 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 stories, but where, you know, the ripples affect the way society works, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, war or or power structure or psychiatry and the psychopath test or, you know, um, did you find in the early in the early, you know, like in some of the stories in them that that was your second book, I think was the second book. Well, my first sort of proper book, I wrote a sort of kind of stupid I, I did a tv series um <laughs> called the ronson mission for bbc2 when i was about sort of 22 23 and it was it was it was very it was really bad and very <laughs> unsuccessful and and i was it i sort of thought that was it for my career it's like you know i'd sort of failed on a on a on a big stage and then the only job offer i had after that was to write kind of stupid sort of um stocking filler type book so i did and then I was kind of terrible. And then, um, and then after that, I wrote them, which I always called my first book until it got nominated for the Guardian First Book Award. And then I was like, <laughs> then they phoned me up and said, I believe this isn't your first book. Oh, no. And I, I went, you know, clubbed class. Um, looks like a book. But I wouldn't call it a book. What constitutes a book? Yeah, uh, exactly. Under the rules. They need very specific rules about that sort of thing. I was disqualified. But those those people, I assume you were you were writing about those people. It's like Alex Jones and Mm. like you know conspiracy conspiracy theory stuff is in there. And then there's like the Tottenham Ayatollah. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did those people feel about? Did you find that when that stuff came out, people thought that you'd taken them apart or that they had sort of like you'd let their voice out into the world um 
I think with that book, it was sort of half and half. I think because um, the because the first kind of I think big proper story I did after that was Tala, which was really the story that kind of I suppose kind of put me on the map, certainly in Britain. And uh, ended up later as a This American Life. Yeah, uh, yeah. Considerably later. So it kind of put me on, on the map here as well, in a way. Um, and and that was a story about um, the rise of Islamic militancy in London. Um, and nobody was paying attention to it at all. To the extent that I remember uh, somebody from a Jewish rights group, so Britain's version of the ADL, said to me, you know, nobody has any idea what this means yet but you know people will hmm. and this was like 97 and you know yeah he was right i thought at the time i thought he was kind of being paranoid and obviously not um so so that was a story about kind of this guy called omar bakri who who basically declared holy war on britain and he said he wouldn't rest until he saw the flag of islam flying over downing street and we thought what was interesting about that story was that you know he lived among us, so he'd he'd need to kind of use our symbols to destroy us. He'd need to use capitalism to destroy capitalism. So I wanted to try and write about Omar and film Omar in the same way I was doing like the neurotic comedian or or you know stories like that, but about something that that was much more important. Mm-hmm. So like on the first day with him, he um, he said, you know, I've let you into my life. I would like something in return. And I said, okay. And he said, will you drive me to Office World where he gets his kind of Islam, the future of Britain pamphlets done because of their special price promise. Um, <laughs> that, you know, they'll give you double the money back if you can find a photocopying service that's cheaper. So straight away, that was like the, the comedy of the, of the story. Um, and yes, yeah, so we spent a year with him. And then I snuck into Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones which was like, I guess, another, and the Bilderberg group. You know, got chased from Portugal with Jim Tucker. They set their security guards onto <laughs> us. And I got incredibly paranoid and started getting chased by the by the Bilderberg group's secret security. And I phoned up the British embassy and said, I'm being chased by the Bilderberg group. And they went, <gasps> and then they went, go on. <laughs> they said, "What are you doing here?" Uh, I said, "I'm I am essentially a hum- I am essentially a humorous journalist out of my depth." So, will you could you phone up the Bilderberg Group and tell them that? Uh, so, um, so I so okay. So, who felt? I think Alex Jones was fine, and in fact, when I wrote the Manister at Goats, he really liked that. A couple of years later, sort of felt that I'd gone more into his. Oh, would he send you a note saying th- yeah. thank you for uh, pursuing this? Yeah, had me on his show. Ah. Um, had me on his show. Turned out that all of his listeners kind of hated me. I got so much abuse. Um, you know, that none of them had, uh, you know, they saw me as like a shell, you know, for the New World Order. It so, is an interesting contrast. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that, that you you were sort of uh, writing about these conspiracy theorists and then the men who stare goes is really about a thing that you can't imagine it's possibly true that is actually true. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's um, um, you're right. I mean, conspiracy theorists really like them. Conspiracy theorists hated them because you know it was a book that basically said you know yeah, Bilderberg Group exists, yes, Bohemian Grove exists, but they're nothing like the way the conspiracy theorists see them. Um, you know, yes, it's odd, and it shows how power works, but. You know, conspiracy theorists add this sort of comp- this level of fiction to it that's, you know, that they do it knowingly and it's dangerous and pernicious. Uh, so conspiracy theorists really hated it. It's a rationalist book. But what's really interesting with the Men's Stoic Goats is, yeah, in some ways it sort of feels like a conspiracy theory, but it, but it is one that turned out to be true, um, that there really was a group of military intelligence people um, try to walk through walls and become invisible and kill goats just by staring at them. <laughs> uh, How quickly did you get far enough into the story that you thought this is a book and this is this is incredible? I mean, it seems like one of those stories that you s- stumble upon and say, you know, again, like this can't possibly be true, and if it is, this is a, this is a book for sure. Or did it evolve over time out of a series um, of? No, actually, it was kind of a disaster um, for a long time. It was it was one of the most difficult working periods I had because what happened was them came out in sort of two thousand two thousand and one, and I did a TV series to go alongside it called Secret Rulers of the World, and it was a it was a big hit. It was the first time I'd ever had like a proper hit. Um, and you know, then went into the bestseller list, and it, it did kind of well over here. Although it came out just after nine eleven over here, which wasn't the best time for a sort of 
funny nebbishy book about extremism that turned out like Terry Gross gave me a hard time on fresh air and oh really yeah I mean a few people got it like Ira you know This American Life got it and John Hodgman got it and you know Sarah Vowell so you know I had some people who could see that you know the the 9-11 and people with buffoonish character traits you know don't have to one doesn't have to um you, you know make the other one invisible there were buffoonish things about the 9-11 hijackers even. They, they did ridiculous. Like, no one would look at them as comedic mm-hmm. given what happened, but mm. the sort of, like, going to the gym and not, and like, you know, not, not exercising really. I remember that, some of that stuff in the news. But Yeah, abs- yeah, yeah, completely. But, you know, people didn't want to hear it. I mean, it took a few years before people wanted to, you know, sort of think about that, I think. and But, um, cause so then what happened, it was Channel 4, uh, the TV company I worked for in Britain, Said, you know, give, give, give us some more secret rulers. And here is, and nobody's ever said this to me before or since, you know, here's like, it was a lot of money, like here's like half a million pounds to go and make more. And I didn't have like any ideas. And I was like, I don't think I can do this. You know, I think this is like a disaster. And there was so much pressure. Like people said, look, no, this never happens. You know, you never get like a, like a you know, carte blanche to do whatever you want. You've got to do it. In fact, our very first trip was the weekend before 9-11. And we, we had all these dead ends. So the first thing we tried to do was something about the Skull and Bones Club, mm-hmm. trying to sneak into the Skull and Bones Club. And that, I felt I, I felt really kind of grubby, like I, was, like I was taking this student club seriously. Like I was a grown man going to Yale to try and turn this into a sort of sinister... You know, to take it seriously, it was mm-hmm. a stupid student club. So, I mean, I know it's a stupid student club with power, but you can see why I didn't. Why that story would make you feel uncomfortable. Student club with eventual power. It yeah. doesn't have any literal power, really. It was sort of like yeah, yeah, anointing yeah. people to later be powerful, maybe. Yeah, but it was sort of kids, you know. It, it, and um, so that one failed. And then I tried to do this story about how George Bush's grandfather, Prescott Bush, had grave robbed Geronimo's grave and stolen his skull which might actually be true really yeah but I but it was it was impossible I'd never done a historical story before and I didn't know how to do it so we wasted a lot of time and money doing that Mm. and it came to nothing and then the third one we tried to do was this Bush's first biographer James Hatfield I think his name was um died in mysterious circumstances and a whole lot of people basically thought that Karl Rove had had him killed. And so I tried to do that. <laughs> and then that was like, it turned out that this guy was, you know, up to his eyes in kind of credit card debt. And, uh-huh. you know, basically, I'm pretty sure he'd killed himself. And Karl Rove had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and so, so by then we'd wasted like about £150,000. Um, and, you know, Channel 4 was getting worried. And I was like saying to everyone, look, I told you, you know, I told you this was going to happen. It's, look at it, look. And I was on like sleepless nights. My, my baby, I had like a baby at the time. It was like two, it was, like two years old. And I'd be like waking up in the middle of the night having anxiety attacks and going back and forward to America and, you know, spending all this money, like going back and forward to America and not getting anything, not getting a thing. And with Secret Rulers, every time we turned on the camera, something interesting happened. You know, <laughs> David Icke, Alex Jones, it was great. And then with this, it was like a disaster. So anyway, so to cap it all, and by the way, I've never, I've never, because these are all stories about failure, so I've never really told these stories before. Uh-huh. So, um, <laughs> I should tell you that these aren't rehearsed stories. These are stories I've never told before. Um, so my producer at the time, John Sargent, said, why don't we do remote viewing? And I knew a tiny bit about remote viewing, but it was this, this idea that um, the US military had these secret psychic spies that were like sitting in a in a condemned clapboard building in Fort Meade, Maryland, trying to be psychic. And um, this writer called Jim Schnabel had just written a book about it called called Remote Viewing. And so reluctantly, because I felt like, you know, someone else had already done the story, you mm. know. And, but it, so, so reluctantly, I met a couple of these psychic spies, um, Joe McMonagall and Ed Dames and one or two others. And the stories were kind of okay, but kind of boring i mean you know basically if you spend 20 years like it sounds like if you're a secret 
psychic spy working in black ops for the US military. That sounds really exciting. But in real life, it's basically just sitting in a room for 25 years <laughs> trying to be psychic. <laughs> and then every so often your funding gets, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, like a new rationalism sweeps into the... Uh, you know, the CIA, and they don't want to fund you anymore. But it's, you know, but it was not a good story. It was boring. It was a boring story. So again, I felt like we were hitting a brick wall. And then what happened was um, we were in Las Vegas, and I was interviewing this guy called Ray Hyman, who was a skeptic. and Of this, the a skeptic of uh, the uh, psychic powers. Yeah, the... but he'd been brought in by the CIA. I mean, this was like literally like, honestly, I don't want to sort of aggrandize the story too much, but I sort of was at the stage of basically somehow giving Channel 4 its money back, you know, because we were just failing and nothing we were doing was kind of broadcastable. And I felt the same way about the remote viewing story. I felt like they were boring and the story was already out there. And uh, so, but then we met this guy, Ray Hyman, and he had been brought in by the CIA to assess the remote viewers in the early 90s. Uh, And it seemed pretty obvious because he's a sort of known kind of James Randi type skeptic that he would assess them as, as having no powers. And that would give the CIA the excuse to close down the unit, which is exactly what did happen. Um, So I'm interviewing Ray Hyman, who was this really kind of sparkly-eyed, kind of sort of Woody Allen-ish sort of, you know, late middle age, sort of very thin, tiny kind of Jewish magician. And, um, you know, he looked like a sort of imp. Like a, and so already he was kind of much nicer to be with than anybody else had been with. And, and I just said to him, and this is, I, and I said to him, when you were there, when you were inside the CIA, you know, testing these guys, did you happen to notice anything else going on? And this kind of look crossed his face. And, it's, and he said, well, yeah, he said, um, I remember there was this general called Stubblebine who thought he could... Uh, burst clouds just by pointing at them. <laughs> I said, and there was another guy called Channon who thought he was like a lieutenant colonel called Channon who was like training soldiers to like fast for a month and, you know, um, and he couldn't remember. He just had, had these little sort of vague memories of Channon and Stubblebine. But by the end of the interview, we had these two names, Channon and Stubblebine. So we, we set off to try and find them. And this like unbelievable story, which nobody had told, uh, kind of unfolded itself, which was, you know, that they were trying to walk through walls and they were trying to become invisible, <laughs> which they adapted after a while, by the way, to just trying to find a way of not being seen. So I said, <laughs> oh, camouflage. And he went, no. And, um, uh, so, um, and they were trying to kill goats just by staring at them and... Um, <laughs> which was kind of leap. That was like level three. Like level one was like <laughs> observation, like how many chairs are in the room. Like level two is invisibility. It's like it's, these are big leaps of level one to level two. Um, and and it just all so so it was like two years of real agony that that took us to that one lucky break. Um, and then and then I remember actually, I was in New York and I phoned up my my publisher Jeff Klosky, who was beginning to worry actually that there was a big gap between them and goats in the end it was a i think a four-year gap mm. and um i said you know i said i think I've, I've i think i've got it and the thing actually that opened it up for me the thing that made me think it was a book was the realization that jim channon and general stubblebine and and these like other people glenn wheaton and a few others they all knew each other and for some reason that sort of unlocked it. i thought okay i can write this like a kind of soap opera you know and um that that was the moment that i thought there was a book and when the when the book came out, and obviously became a film, and a lot of people will know the film, and you've probably been asked a lot of times about what it feels like to have your book turn into a film, and all these mm-hmm. sorts of things. But did you you talked about feeling like you're on the brink of failure? Did you suddenly feel secure in your success, or did it just create another level of anxiety right. somehow? Well, actually, when the Minnesota Cuts first came out, it, it wasn't. When the book came out, it wasn't a success at all, mm. and. Um, I'd be giving these talks. Them had been a success. And like I'd give a talk like in Oxford Street in London and I'd get maybe, you know, 300 people. Um, and then when Goats came out, when I said Goats came out, I was like, I was back down to like about 25 people. People weren't interested in the story at all. And um, it sort of mystified me. I thought a lot about, you know, why, why this was like an amazing story. Why was nobody interested? And it dawned on me that nobody was interested because it was about craziness that was like a long way off people didn't connect to it um 
And so for a few years, actually, after that, I, I gave up making these kind of stories. And instead, I started telling these sort of much smaller personal stories about irrationality in domestic situations, like, for instance, the being thrown in the lake mm-hmm. and going back to the school reunion. Um, I thought that was... Uh, and sure enough, my audience, like when I give talks, the audiences got big again. And when, when the Menace at Goats and them were out, my audiences were mainly paranoid looking men and then when I started writing about like my domestic life my audiences were like open smiling women so it was like <laughs> it was like so much more pleasurable and uh, so for a few years I did that and my my agent and publisher neither of them liked it thought thought that I was wasting my time telling stories about things that didn't matter and I was saying no I think it you know I think it matters I think you know fights we have you know bad parenting fights we have with our neighbours, these kind of bubbles of irrationality, I think they do matter. Um, But in the end, a couple of things happened. Firstly, I really felt like I was beginning to kind of exploit my family for this stuff, for the tyranny of the deadline. You know, I'd I'd start... And my son was getting older, you know, Mm -hmm. he wasn't three anymore, he was like seven. And and, um, so I thought, I can't keep writing about... You know, it's exploitative, you know, to do this. So that's one reason why I quit. And the other reason was was because, um, you know, my publisher kept saying to me, this is not good stuff, you know. Did you feel that way? I Now, looking back on it, I think there was four or five stories of about, like, a, I probably read about a hundred. I think there were four or five stories that were kind of great. And, I'm, and in fact, I still read, I still do some of them at, at readings to this day. Um, and I think the rest was sort of okay. For some reason, I wasn't, um, I, I was kind of good. I was quite good friends at the time with Nick Hornby, and he would do that stuff kind of really effortlessly. And I don't know. I didn't. I don't know. There was something. There was something not quite right about them. Did you? Is your son old enough now that have you t- ever talked to the, talked to him about it? Or yeah, God, for ages he gave me such a <laughs> hard time about them. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In what way? Like he didn't like being in them, or he yes. he had a different take on the. Um, the both, story. both, and didn't like being in them. And uh, there's this one story about when he's about six or seven, uh, ask me if there's a worse swear word than fuck. And I do this big story about how I sort of lie to him. And I make think I've heard that live. Yeah, yeah, right. I say it's Lamoni. And then the next thing I know, he's like, he's having like kids around for sleepovers. And I hear them and they're all going, Lamoni. And that's like going to set this terrible ripple effect going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Until finally, at the end, he comes into my office and he goes, hi. And I say, hi. And he goes, oh, cunt. <laughs> he does work it out for himself. Anyway, I, I've had special dispensation from him to tell that story, even though he doesn't love it, uh, because it's kind of funny in it and it works well on stage. Um, but in general, he doesn't like it. Yes, yeah, so I gave that up. And then in about 2009, the film came out. What kind of effect did that have when it came out? Was... Um, you know, funnily enough, it didn't really have that much impact on me at all um i mean i'll use it like you know i'll use it like in emails when i'm trying to approach people for interviews i'll say you know um my books include the men's dead guts which was adapted into a film starring george clooney <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of opens. you just have a cut and paste for that yeah just like basically a I, could, I could write that with my eyes closed um but yeah. do you um i was gonna ask you i mean this is more i think partly in reference to the stories where you sort of had put yourself in them. I mean, a lot of your stories have yourself in them, whether it's about your family and its domestic situation, but do you feel like your repertorial persona is your everyday persona or is a different Mm. person? Uh, No, I think it's pretty much me. Um, Yeah, I think so. I I mean, the nice thing when I'm just writing and not doing radio or television is that when I'm interviewing somebody, I don't need to perform. I don't need to kind of... You know, I don't need to think about how I'm coming over. And that's why I much prefer writing. You know, you're, you're much more, it's much less stressful. You're much more invisible. You're not acting. Um, I always think journalists shouldn't be, like if journalists want to go into television, you know, don't be presenters. You know, there's no connection between presenting and, you know, be a director or an editor. You know, that's that's the kind of journalistic side of it. Um, so, yeah, no, but I think it's pretty much... I think it's pretty much me. I mean, I really am. Some people think that, like when I talk about my anxiety, uh, 
I'm sort of it's a shtick. That is, I mean, I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is this sort of, I mean, especially nowadays, there's the kind of uh, like storyteller you know, that's sort of like in the realm of journalism or maybe they feel like a journalist, but uh, the kind of person who, if you discovered they had maybe embroidered some of the story, they would say, well, yeah, it's all about telling a, a great story. Um, wh- and But where do you feel like you fit on that spectrum? Because you also tell great, hilarious mm-hmm. stories. Yes. No, you're right. I mean, I remember, or somebody actually told me the other day about when the Mike Daisy thing happened with This American Life. Somebody said, I, don't, I have no idea if this is true or not, but somebody said that at one point Ira said, what about David Sedaris? You know, where where do we... You know, where do we draw the line? No, I, I have no idea if I ever did say that or not because somebody said that to me. I mean, some people have written a, uh, about his stories and sort of tried to figure out which parts were true and, and yeah. not. I don't know that he's ever responded to that or talked about yeah. it. And also, does it matter? Yeah. Um, people, in the end, who decides? I mean, this is kind of interesting, right? I mean, and this is actually what I'm going to be, what I'm in part what my next book's about. It's like, who decides who gets publicly shamed and how do some people survive and how are some people destroyed and you know it feels like at the moment it feels like a very kind of fluid situation you know I I can't help thinking and really I could be wrong about this so don't kill me if I'm wrong about (laughs) this but I can't help thinking that Joan Alera's crimes like 15 years ago wouldn't have been wouldn't have been the the death penalty that, that it turned out to be although it may not be a death penalty which only because he does have a new because he's writing a book he's now. got a new book deal now but I mean you know when, how it does is a whole different question um, but my answer is that no I, I mean I, I've you know I've never been I've never done anything wrong <laughs> <laughs> I've never done anything that uh, that would get me into any kind of trouble partly because I'm incredibly neurotic and anxious and it would just pray it would just haunt me you know if I thought there was like something in one of my stories that could someone could catch that could blow up yeah I would it would just fucking kill me so that's one reason and also because you know the older you get that when you're younger an uncomfortable truth a truth that doesn't make your story better you sort of think wouldn't it be better if that truth was actually that truth you know, which is the th- which is what failed Joan Alera. Yeah, if it was just a little bit, a yeah. little bit better, it would fit a little bit better, and I'd have a better story, and my editors would like it more. And yeah, exactly, that's what killed him. That I think, and 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 um, uh, that real busyness. You know, he was like say he was g- getting all these kind of unbelievably lucrative public speaking talks, and you know, he was like way too ambitious, and you know, didn't have the time to be responsible and became very sloppy and then became really deceptive as well when you know it began to get become obvious that this was what was going on so like everything he did was 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 wrong but you know the older you get i kind of thinking that john lowe would have carried on doing that because the older you get you actually realize that no uncomfortable fact piece of truth makes your story worse it's like contradictions are great you know What's bad is what's what's like the worst for me. The worst journalistic sin in the world is is um, is kind of ridiculous polemicism. Mm. You know, it's like I don't I don't get why all the polemicists are fine. Everybody fucking loves Jermaine Greer and you know Foucault and you know <laughs> all of that crowd. Um, to me, the contradictions, the story not turning out the way you want it to be. It's like you know, be a kind of twig in the tidal wave of the story. Um, there's a moment in the psychopath test, which, you know, which I think is the best, you know, the best thing I ever wrote. I mean, I think the psychopath test is the best thing I ever wrote because mm-hmm. it's like totally, I'm like, you know, I'm going down one road where I'm, where I'm like absolutely convinced that psychopaths secretly rule the world. <laughs> and I am now like an unbelievably powerful psychopath spotter. And I can spot psychopaths. So you took a course. I took a course, yeah. I have a certificate descendants. <laughs> And I got so drunk with my psychopath spotting powers. <laughs> and then about halfway through, it was actually my friend Adam Curtis who's doing a show in New York at the moment at the the Armoury. He's a great, great documentary maker. And um, he said to me, look, look, don't become one of those people. And he said, 
you know, these things don't exist. You know, he, he you know, he's like kind of very arty langish. He's like, um, I mean, he says, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, is that's not, you know. So, you know, there's a problem there. But but I really needed Adam to to say this stuff to me. I really needed him to like absolutely pour, you know, everything, you know, this entire kind of bucket of like, you know, liquid that was good in my book. You know, I needed Adam to just kick it over. Mm-hmm. And and so the book becomes, you know, I, I start to question everything. And that wrench where I kind of go from being this kind of, you know, confident psychopath butter to questioning the kind of whole nature of checklists and labels and diagnosis. Yeah, diagnosis. Yeah. So so I in the book takes like a kind of hundred and eighty degree kind of turn, which is very kind of wrenching. And it took me like a good year to 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 make that transition because I literally had to like pull one very solid belief system out of my head and supplant it with another one. But yeah, looking back now, I mean God, if I'd been like so in love with the first half of the book that I was like refusing to accept the second half you know at best just at best just putting under the carpet facts that didn't suit my thesis and at worst manipulating facts the book wouldn't have been anywhere near as good you know so I've, so people who do that actually you know are wrong um it's boring it's boring or it could be boring yeah it's boring also you're just you're closing yourself off to like in great narrative possibilities you know you should have the rug, rug pulled from under you you should be like willing to be a twig in the tide there should be no reason why you would want to manipulate a fact as a journalist there should there should be no reason for it because when things fuck up when you can't get the interview you want when you know when it turns out that something you thought was true wasn't true you know all these things that that would freak some journalists out shouldn't you know these these are great these should be great gifts but i don't want to sound like (laughs) fucking tony robbins here like you know but (laughs) they should be you know i mean like if if, if the person you like desperately need to interview to get this book finished turns you down you should think of it as like a fantastic opportunity (laughs) to do something that you hadn't thought of to go down a different road um so, yeah, that's the other reason why I would never end up doing a journal error, because I actually think it makes the story, not only is it wrong, but it's worse for the story. Hmm. But you, you uh, to the outside, to an outsider, you also seem like you're like the, the hardest working man in journalism. You, you're doing radio documentaries. You've got uh, like an online series of documentaries about technology and life on the web and things like that and mm-hmm. then you're doing is gq stories and then you're doing guardian column and then you're doing this i mean yeah. are, are you incredibly busy yeah i'm i'm really yes i am uh, i mean just today i i did like for the first couple of hours i was transcribing tapes for this big guardian story that i'm doing and then i was doing the voiceover for my malcolm gladwell film and then i had a big session with this american life so i've got this american life going out this weekend um yeah, I think now that my son's like fifteen and kind of doesn't need or want <laughs> me around anymore, um, and I've been married to my wife for like twenty five years, and um, it's like you know, what have I got? I got my head. <laughs> should be working. It's like also I live in a country now, you know, where when my friends come over from London to visit, it's really nice, but it does mean that there's quite long periods when actually all my friends are in Britain and I'm in New York. So actually, you know, it's, I feel a bit like a sort of exiled monk where all I can do is work. <laughs> do, uh, do your friends in London imagine that you're sort of like spending time with George Clooney and just <laughs> no, living No, all I do is moan to them all the time. I actually <laughs> think my life is worse than it actually is. Um, I mean, all I do, I mean, I do, I, I just work. I mean, I work and work and work and then we watch an hour of TV. I, I go to the gym and we watch an hour of TV and and go to bed. I'm in bed by half ten, and then I get up at six and do it all over again. But to me, it's great. I mean, like last week, I was off in the Mojave Desert doing this thing for the Guardian, and that was like four o'clock in the morning. I was in the Mojave Desert, and um, uh, and for me, you know, I mean, nothing, nothing makes me as happy as that. I mean, yeah. especially now that my son's got older, and you know, nothing, um, nothing makes me happier than that than being on in an adventure. I did this thing for my next book. I, I shouldn't say what it is because it is a bit of a scoop, but. I basically did something for my next book that nobody else has managed to do. And, you know, you just feel like, you know, just 
totally blessed and that sort of brings you know it's like the reason for me to sort of you know be alive is to go off and have these adventures um yeah when is the book when is that book coming out? um oh, i've still got a long way to go i'm yeah. hoping to deliver it next spring hoping to so it'll come out possibly next next autumn but before that i've got um i've got this michael fassbender film that i wrote frank right. and and then what's yeah. what's the uh, what's the this American Life story? Because this will be uh, out. This, that'll be out. I think by okay. the time this we yeah. air this. I think it's a nice story. It's about it's about a bank robbery where um, I won't give you the twists in case people want to hear it. So I'll just tell you kind of absolutely the setup. Uh, the setup is is uh, is a bank robbery where the where the robber is like terrible. He's just like the world's worst bank robber. It's like he goes in, says this is a robbery, looks panicky. And just runs out and doesn't manage to like successfully rob any bank. And then he's caught. His entire spree lasts four days. And then he's caught. And um um and it turns out that this whole thing was happening that's completely unexpected. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I think that's a that's a really good setup. So the the last question I want to ask you is uh since I've told people around the office that I was gonna interview you people they know your work and they love your work and they're like, oh, John Ronson I've been, mm-hmm. you know I love this and I love that do you do you at this point in your career have a sense that there is like a fan base in some sense that you're writing to or you're trying to provide something for or does it still feel like it did when you were you know younger and just sort of like doing the stories that you mm-hmm. thought were interesting to yourself uh, no I definitely I mean particularly in Britain the psychopath test sold sold really well in Britain. When I give talks in Britain now, you know, I get good audiences of like you know, four or five hundred people, sometimes I mean sometimes like a thousand people. And so you meet them afterwards, so you get a real sense of of who of who likes me. <laughs> and you know what, I've really noticed this and I don't well, I mean I've just really noticed this, that that most of the people who like me are working class or lower middle class. I don't have a I don't have much of a fancy readership. Um, and I don't quite know why that is. I mean, it makes me sort of pleased. So, for instance, I've got two speakers agents. One sort of specialises in like kind of art centres and, you know, small literary festivals. And the other one specialises in sort of business conferences and, <laughs> you know, hedge funds. And she has never got me a single one. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, not Never one. the big corporate conference? <laughs> never. Whereas the art centre, you know, I can turn up in like Doncaster or, you know, and, you know, sell out the, sell out the art centre there. Frankly, you know, that, is all is all I want and, and and need, you know, to turn up at a sort of low middle class town, like the sort of town where I grew up, and talk to like two or three hundred people at the art centre. That's, you know, that that sort of in terms of like what I do after I've told, you know, after I've written the story, the way you know that's kind of definitely enough for me. Um, so yeah, so so I'm also very aware of the fact that my last book you know, was good and people liked it. And if my next one isn't so good, you know, I'll be turning up at art centres in Doncaster and there'll be like 40 people there. (laughs) So, you know, I'm not, I I know that it can go just as easily as it comes. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. I enjoyed it. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Longform Podcast this week. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. Uh, quick plug, we have a story out called The Bones of Mariana by David Kushner. It's uh, a fantastic story. It's an investigative report and uh, a great narrative. So you can find it at atavist.com. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Uh, thanks to John Ronson for coming in and joining me and making me laugh. And uh, thanks to Lauren Kirchner, our editor who, as always, makes us sound better. And we also got help from Gavin Jenkins this week. Thanks to our sponsors, EA Sports, uh, FIFA 14, LearnVest, and Tiny Letter. And we will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? 
I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.